Welcome to Texas Fame Law Unfiltered. I'm your host, Justin Jackson, alongside my associate attorney, Myron Kamahara. We're the Jackson Law Firm based in Cedar Park, Texas, just north of Boston. We created the show because there isn't a show about Texas family law that cuts through the BS. We're here to give you the unvarnished truth, the good, bad, and the other. But remember, nothing we say is legal advice specific to you. Every case is different. If you would like a free consultation with our office, call us at 512-528-1900 or just visit us on the web at www.thejacksonfirm.com. That's T-H-E jacksonfirm.com. Thanks and hope you enjoy the show. All right, what's up, gang? Episode six, bench trial or jury trial. Last week we took a little bit break from the serious stuff, and uh, we had uh, our paralegal on. Uh, but today we're moving into really um, the finalization and, and making a determination whether or not we want a bench trial or jury trial. Justin, what is a bench trial versus jury? Yeah, so really what we're trying to help people with today is just make that determination of when is a bench trial or jury trial um, an effective solution. And before we get into that, um, a bench trial is a trial held and decided by a judge. Um, And of course, a jury trial involves a jury making uh, a number of decisions in lieu of the judge making that decision. Um, In both scenarios, you're still going to have a judge except the judge uh, has 100% decision-making control with the bench trial and limited, sometimes even no decision-making uh, control uh, in a jury trial. I know. And generally speaking, the decision in a jury trial by a judge are decisions of facts where the jury would, would make that determination as opposed to any type of legal decision, which is always made by the judge. Yeah. And we're going to get into some of those categories in a little bit, but as far as the number of jurors that you're going to see in a a jury trial sometimes clients are curious you know how many jurors are going to be in the jury box they watch tv they see jury trials uh in a county court jury trial it's going to be six jurors in a district court jury trial it's going to be 12. okay okay and so here's a here's the question the first question right um family law case we file it uh mr jackson can i get a jury trial and the answer is always yes. Uh, you're entitled to one. Uh, you just have to make a formal request for it, and you got to pay a ten dollar fee. It's just for whatever reason. Oh, pretty, pretty minimal though. Not, not doesn't break the bank at all. All right. So, I, I guess the common assumption and perhaps misconception too is that all attorneys have experience with jury trials, which is really not the case here. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I would say. A, a substantial number of family lawyers don't have experience of jury trials. And that, that's not to say that most family lawyers don't have trial experience. I mean, most do. The, the, the thing is, just very few cases actually make it to a jury uh, for a, a many, for many number of reasons. You know, kind of get a sense of some of those reasons as we talk later. But, um, I, you know, I would, I would say it's, it's important to know whether the lawyer you're you've hired has experience in jury trials, because if that's something that you might want to entertain in the future, um, having an attorney with no jury trial experience to me, shouldn't disqualify the attorney. It should just be a consideration. Uh, I mean, in fact, one of the requisites, I think for a certified family lawyer uh, to get that certification, I should say is at least one jury trial. So it it is one of the avenues to get more. Just one out of the the many though, plus uh, requirements 
uh, that is uh, required to become a certified family law lawyer. Um, so, given that uh, statement, what are the issues that can be heard in a jury trial, and what can the jury decide here? Yeah. So back back like what I was defining a bench versus a jury trial. Um, in a bench trial, judge is hearing everything. In a jury trial, uh, the judge may still decide certain issues. It's not that in a jury trial the jury gets everything. It's that. Depending on your case, the jury may only handle certain issues or the jury may handle all the issues. Again, it just depends on what issues are in your case. So, for example, here's the, some of the issues that a jury can decide. A jury can decide items of conservatorship, such as sole or joint managed conservatorship. The jury can decide who determines the primary residence of a child. Um, the jury can uh, decide what's the geographic restriction for where a party can or the parties can reside. Uh, a jury can decide uh, common law marriage. Is there such uh, a, an existence of a common law marriage? Um, the jury can also decide whether uh, separate or community property uh, exists in a divorce case. So in other words, how is the property characterized? And then the jury can also decide what is the value of community property in a divorce. So if if all of those issues are your case or, or part of your case, then that's a jur those are all jury issues. Um, then then we get into, of course, what are the things? What they can't decide, right? What they can't yeah. decide. And then, so first off, we got enforcement of a prior order, which makes perfect sense. I mean, the judge signs an order and you're motioning the court to enforce the order. Um, no jury can decide that. Uh, based off the judge's judge's uh, previous decision, I should say, in the case. Um, the next one is visitation. Um, and, and I know you noted this down. you want to explain a little bit more about this? Yeah, I, I kind of highlighted visitation uh, on our show notes today because uh, it, it's important that people know that, you know, it, let's say that you've decided in your mind, I really want to explore a jury trial. Because I don't know, maybe the judge is not somebody that's giving me a schedule that I wanted, or I don't think they're going to give me a schedule, a visitation schedule that I want. And they immediately think a jury trial is my answer. It's a, it's really important for me to remind everyone that a jury cannot decide visitation. So, uh, you know, of course, I have clients go, well, then what's the value of jury trial? You know, if that's really what I'm going after, well, they're indirectly, you can influence visitation by getting a jury to find uh, positively in your favor on conservatorship. Right. So for example, if you were to win sole managed conservatorship with a jury and you don't think a judge would ever grant that to you, but you think you think a jury's got the common sense to award you sole managed conservatorship, it's going to put the judge in a really weird spot to award the other parent primary visitation rights if you're getting sole managed conservatorship. Um, or even on the lesser side of the scale, if you can get a jury and you think you can convince a jury to give you the exclusive right to de determine primary residence, AKA primary custody. Right. Then it also puts pressure on the judge to go, why would I go against the jury and give primary visitation rights to the other parent when the jury kind of indicated otherwise? So in other words, you can put pressure on a judge. You just can't force them on visitation. Let me ask you a question. Well, if the jury decides conservatorship or exclusive rights um, in order to establish the primary, does the does the judge in the same case decide on visitation still? 
Yes. Right. That's what you're saying here. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Is, is, uh, basically what happens is there's a charge that goes to a jury. A charge is just a piece of paper and it's the document that you might've seen in movies. They're holding it and they're looking through questions and trying to decide what to write in the blanks. Basically the charge is instructions with blanks. Right. Should so-and-so get so such and such blank? Should such and such happen blank? The jury fills in those things. Now, the things that are not on there are the things the jury cannot decide. Sure. And then at the end, when the jury has read their verdict or you know whatever their decision is, then the judge lays out his own, his or her own ruling on the other remaining issues. But you could just imagine the judge reviewing and, and seeing the the jury's ruling and and having hopefully at least you would think some impact on what they're going to do with sure it. sure okay next one is child support obviously child support uh is in the family code and it's it's there is a ceiling to child support which we refer to as guideline um and no jury decides the the amount i guess of child support um in in this sense because it's already guided by the family code yeah, I mean, you know, ceiling, yeah, it's there, there's the upper range of what the court's supposed to impose. But you're right, the child support is is a legal issue in the eyes of the law. And so if you really want to know, like, what differentiates can or cannot be jury issues is, is it purely a legal issue? If it's purely a legal issue, the judge has to decide it. If it involves fact decision-making, that's where it crosses over into being possibly a jury. Right. Well put. Okay. Last one, property division. Um, and, and this is just distributing, just to clarify, distributing the the marital property in a divorce uh, between both parties. Yeah. The, now, my question, though, coming from this is that if there is a, if, if there is an insupportability claim, then that the judgment would take that into account. But if there's a fault-based claim, would the jury have any um, sway in finding a fault, fault-based in divorce? Well, again, uh, the, the jury just can't decide property division. So, I mean, ultimately, that is that is purely within the province of the judge. I, I'm asking the... And not necessarily the property division, because that would be the effect of a fault-based divorce. Would the would the jury would it come within the purview of the, the jury's decision-making authority to find fault? I you know what I didn't actually research that exact issue. I've never had um, a jury trial on a fault-based divorce, but that's a good question. Um, my my intuition would say that's a jury issue yeah. because it's fact-based right. and it's not legal and it's not adultery and cruelty and all the various fault-based claims. Mm -hmm. They have not been uh, defined to such a degree that it's purely a legal issue. So I would suspect it's uh, it's a jury issue. I got you. So we went over what the jury can decide, what the jury cannot decide. So it begs the question, when is a bench or jury trial most appropriate? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the scenario where I'm, I'm going to walk this through is client comes in, it's it's either they had a temporary order ruling that they hated, or they come in to modify their order because they don't like how it was written years ago by the judge they consider bad. So let's just lump it into the basket. Client has a definite negative perception of the judge that they're stuck with. Right. And let, let's even define that further. Judge they're stuck with. In the family, in, in family courts that 
we operate out of, you're generally speaking stuck with the court that, uh, you know, that you're assigned to with your, your filing number. Um, so you really are stuck with that judge until they retire or they whatever, uh, move on. And so when a, when a client's upset with the judge they have, it, they obviously know they can't just pick a new judge. Right. So then they're just, you know, their arms are in the air and they're wondering, what are my options? And of course, their first, you know, instinctive reaction, and it's not a bad reaction, is can we get a jury trial and, and would it make sense? So my first consideration is, is just that. Who is your judge? Uh, what is the temperament of your judge that you have? What's the consistency of the judge that you have? Uh, and, I, and let's talk about temperament for a moment because, you know, some judges just are very dictatorial. Right. They're very, um, very much one way. Yeah. And they're, they're absolutely just repulsed by the idea of, of changing their mind. And that brings up the second component, which is consistency. Um, some judges will make bad rulings, but they're not consistent in making those bad rulings. Or maybe they're flexible to making different rulings in the future. So it's important to know whether you have a judge that is, let's just call to me a judge that would, 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 in my mind, open the door most widely to jury trial, which is an inflexible judge, right. a temperamental judge that, you know, is stubborn, uh, just stuck in his or her ways. Right. And we spoke about this, right, in our first show, right? This could actually be leading to, or I guess case bias could actually come into play with this as well through our analysis of the judge, right? Because if a judge will rule a certain way with certain facts and it's been prevalent in your career and your experience with this judge, then maybe a good idea to think about a jury trial here. You know, provided that the provided that the issue that needs to be heard is one for the jury, right? Yeah, no, you're you're right. I mean, you know, typically the stubbornness, the the temperamental nature of a judge, um, you know, instinctively and reflexively ruling one way or the other is rooted in bias. Yeah. And, and so they may not actually always call it out, but you know, your attorney that you hire, uh, certainly us, if you ever hire us, we've done, you know, we've had so many cases in front of each of the judges that we work in front of that, you know, we know very quickly what kind of issue this judge typically instinctively rolls sure. or the other off. So, to, you know, to, to expect, uh, you know, some kind of change when you have a judge like that is just is also equally being stubborn and, and not thinking. Sure, sure. You know, I think I might have jumped, jumped the gun uh, a bit because I, I already brought up the critical issues in your case. And I think this is leading to um, an analysis of what a jury can possibly decide. Um, so that that also needs to be part of your analysis uh, as you analyze who the judges in your cases are as well, in order whether or not to take it out of the judge's hands and request a jury trial or just leave it as a bench trial. But the fail-safe, not fail-safe, that's a bad word, actually. I guess testing the waters here, Justin. What do you do when you're undecided and the issues are within the powers of a jury to decide? What do you do in a case in order to test the waters? Yeah, you know, for sure you want to test the waters with temporary orders. Um, temporary orders give you kind of two bites of the apple, so to speak. I mean, if you if you're not sure whether you know this judge is, is going to be favorable to you one way or the other, you, you get your temporary orders going. And if they're favorable, 
that's fantastic because you, you know, no matter who the judge is, I could say blindly that most judges don't like changing their minds. Right. That's just how human beings are. It's not even just about judges. Most people don't like changing their minds about something when they've made it up. It just make in their mind it makes them look foolish sure. to change their mind. Sure. Now uh, there are there are there is a, a judge or two that I do know will completely change their mind, and that's a case by case scenario. But um, temporary orders are just wonderful. Yeah, you, you get that first ruling, and you can decide: is this judge seeing reality? Is this judge not? And then you can adjust accordingly. But you know, I'll go back to you know whether to have a temp- sorry whether to have a jury trial to begin with. And again, I'll remind everyone that if your case involves none of the issues that a jury could decide, if it's only about visitation, then the, the decision's already been made. You know, you can really just start with that and then get down to judge temperamentalness, you know, judge's stubbornness, and then of course jump straight into you know what. Let's just test out temporary orders. Right. No, that absolutely has to be the first analysis is whether or not the issue is, is right for the jury. All right. And I think the good temporary order uh, or, or the, the, the good option is when you have the temporary orders and you stay the course because the ruling was in your favor. That rule itself is probably for bench and jury trials. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Well, the biggest question here is how much is it going to cost me for a jury trial? Yeah. And uh, this kind of is almost uh, a bigger question that that involves, you know, what is my case going to cost? I get that question all the time, whether it's a bench or a jury trial. And I always feel like I'm hiding the ball or, or that I'm being coy or I'm not being you know, responsive, honest. And, and it's really not the case. Uh, it. You know, you're talking about you know, uh, getting hired for a job that is very uncertain as far as what the you know the, the process is going to look like from a time component, and from of course, what's the other side going to do? What are they going to file? How crazy are they going to go with their budget? Because to some degree, even if I had a client say, "Look, I'm on a really tight budget," I couldn't even promise them we're going to stay within the budget, even if they said, "I only want you to do the things within my budget." Because the problem is. We're on the hook for what the other side does too. If they, if they want to take tons of depositions and right. set lots of hearings, your client could have, have never wanted those things. But we still have to defend the client for those things. So I mean, I'm I'm being really long winded here, but I will definitely say that within the parameters of that description, a jury trial tends to cost. And I'm going to conservatively say this: I'll say at least three times more than your typical case. Mm-hmm. And and that's just super vague, but. You can get a sense that we're talking multiples more than a typical case. No, I, I think you're right. I mean, I get this question all the time as well. And I normally are on the side of, well, I give them a range. You probably give them a range too, but you're right where we can't predict every little thing that comes out. And we're on the hook, you know, by the rules in order to respond to certain things, to respond to motions. If a motion is filed uh, on, the opposing party's behalf. And so I normally give them a range, but I kind of set it a little bit higher than it would be because in the event that you haven't taken into account every little scenario that can come about, right? Yeah, it's better to, well, it's always better to under-promise and over-deliver. Exactly, exactly. So why do jury trials take more time? Yeah, so a couple things. It's the preparation leading into it, for one. Mm -hmm. Uh, With the judge, 
you know, I remember I had a judge one time and he told me, he says, Mr. Jackson, don't assume that I'm the village idiot. And I love, love it when he said that. I might even have said that in a prior episode mm-hmm. of that story, but it, it, I'm reminded of that constantly because with judges, you need to prepare, you need to present the evidence, but you don't necessarily need to treat the judge like he's never done this before. Right. Uh, so and to some degree, you're packaging things maybe just a little more loosely than you would with the jury trial. For a jury trial, it, it may be the very first time they've ever sat in any legal proceeding. Yes. So you want to just baby step by baby step right. the jury. Right. So there's more preparation. That's number one. Number two, uh, it just takes a whole lot more time uh, to um, to have a jury trial. So a bench trial, I mean, very rarely in my career has a bench trial ever gone more than one day. Yeah. Uh, jury trials almost always are three days or more. And there's a reason for that. Uh, the day one is jury selection and, uh, which involves, uh, what they call four dire Four dires where you put the jury through a ton of questions to determine whether those are favorable jurors for your case. Then you start striking jurors. So that's four dire. That takes quite a while because you have a room full of people yeah. and both sides get to spend quite a bit of time doing that process. Then Quickly, you, real quick, though, why in the world in Texas we call it more dire? Uh, I went to law school in Michigan, practice in Hawaii. Everywhere I've been, they call it more dire. Yeah, well, actually, they that's not entirely true. They say that, I'm surprised you say that in Michigan because they there's a joke that anywhere, oh boy, is it west of the Mason Dixon line? I can't remember which one they say. I've heard this too, though. I heard but this. But it's Voir dire. might have even heard that, I think, in uh, my cousin Vinny, if I'm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, it's Voir dire, some, and, uh, and elsewhere, and it's Voir dire elsewhere. It, it's a French term. None of us really know the right French accent. <laughs> Probably somewhere between voir dire and voir dire. Yeah. But gotcha. regardless, uh, you got voir dire. Yeah. Then you got opening statement which is usually going to be a lot longer with a jury trial because you're baby-stepping them. Then you have at least one full day of testimony, probably a day and a half. Then the final day you reserve at least half that day for deliberations. Mm-hmm. Because again, you're also, you know, a judge is going to expeditiously make a ruling based upon their experience, but a jury is going to get a hand in a pile of exhibits and they're going to sit in a room. And you can imagine if you had one person to make a decision, you could be ex- executive about it. Yeah. But imagine six or 12 people arguing. It's going to take hours. Right. So you're talking usually at three, sometimes five days. That's a typical range for a jury trial. Oh, wow. So when, what is the longest deliberation you've had in your career? I had deliberations that lasted, I would say, go six hours. Six hours? Six to eight. Oh, wow. Somewhere in there from, from like the morning time till the evening. And then we finally got word that they'd made a ruling. I mean, you have to remember too, if if the jury was compensated correctly, they would probably take more time. Because yeah. I, I actually feel a lot of sympathy for jurors after the I've finished my case because they've been handed a ton of information from mm-hmm. both sides. Mm-hmm. And usually, again, they've never done anything like this before. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're asked to, to sort through all that. But the reality is I want to say, I think it's $6 a day. I can't remember which they get. They get a very, very tiny, like piddly amount of money per day and they're missing work. A lot of that, a lot of the people in jury are missing work and not even getting paid. Right. So, you know, I was shocked it took that long one day, but sometimes, you know, I, I don't think 
they have much choice. They just have to sort through all this information, so it, it can take time. Yes, and I think six bucks is under the the minimum wage. You know, it's funny that you had a judge tell you that he's not the village idiot, or don't assume he's the village idiot. Yeah, that's insane from what we've learned and in, in our experience. Because normally, I I try to simple it down a bit in order to lead that judge into you know well the no, that i come up i'm gonna have to interrupt you because that's not what i did you know sometimes what i've done in the past because i've got a client who you know really really wants me to present the court these 25 exhibits right and, and i i'll fight clients sometimes on this not because i don't love them not because i don't care about them it's just i I know what the judge wants to hear and I know what the judge has to hear, but I've had clients, they tell me, they, they know better than me. Right. They tell me right. I need all these 25 exhibits in there. And I go, okay, we're going to do it. So then by exhibit, you know, eight, nine or 10 or 12 or 13 or 20, you know, this judge, mm -hmm. uh, he's since retired. He just said, look, I get it. You know, you're on email number 20. You're on e whatever. We've, we've seen it. You don't even need to read every single line here. I get it. And, and, you know, I actually appreciate it. And when he said that, I didn't take offense to it. I knew that he certainly got it. Yeah. You know, I had a judge actually last week just call me to the bench because I did the same thing and I included it as well. But he called me to the bench. He's like, he told me the same thing. I get it. What you're trying to do. Um, you know, we, we always talk about, well, clients always come to us. When can we get into court? When can we get into court? Right. And we're talking normally like bench trial. Uh, at least from what I'm telling you right now, from my experiences, but we have, and I totally tell the client, look, we have to look at the court's calendar and we're really at the whim of the court's calendar here. But in a jury trial, are there more delays than just getting in for a bench trial? Yeah. Yeah. There are. I mean, because what happens is the court isn't looking for that little gap in the calendar where they're looking for, you know, four hours or eight hours. They're looking for a multi day span where nothing is set. And honestly, sometimes I wonder how any of these cases ever get set because also sympathy I have is for judges and their court coordinators because they're understaffed. There's not enough judges for all the cases. So to find that three to five day gap in the calendar where nothing is set is is rare. Is and, unique. Yeah, in addition, you also have to coordinate three calendars, right? The courts, your calendar. Or our calendar, I should say, and then opposing counsel's calendar. Yeah, you're right. Three, actually, you're right. Three calendars where you got to find that three to five day gap, right? And that's crazy too. Yeah, I mean, we, we have a hard time finding a one day gap sometimes. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. All right. So, are there any other considerations that you take into account when you know deciding whether or not to pursue a jury trial? Yeah, sure. Uh, the county, and we covered this a little bit on another episode about bias and and, and whatnot. Certainly. A, the county that you're in can play a little bit into that. Um, there, there's just certain personalities that I would say are politics of counties. Just to kind of lay a framework, you're talking about the cross-section of potential jurors that live in different counties, right? And that could yeah. possibly be a juror on your case and how they would review or uh, perceive the issues and facts in, the, in your certain case, right? Yes. Yeah. You know, I... I don't want to, it's, it's really hard to paint counties in a broad brush and, and I, I'm hesitant to do it, but if I did do it at all, I think I'd also not be doing a service to the client. Cause I have seen, let's just call it subtle patterns over the last 18 years. So some of the subtle patterns would be Williamson County, um, you know, 
a little bit more, I would say, conservative uh, fiscally when it comes to doling out yeah. child support or spousal support. Yeah. Uh, spousal know, support. Travis County, you, you get much more open to those things. I mean, I, I remember I was in Williamson County. Uh, this just comes immediately to mind. Uh, it was a year or two ago, and I was, I was asking for interim attorney's fees, I think, of $10,000, which in my mind and most anyone's mind is a lot of money and it is a lot of money, but it was the kind of case that was absolutely crazy. The, my representative, the wife, she'd been cut off of all finances. The the husband had hired a high powered attorney and, and given that firm, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and we had no money whatsoever. And the judge, I, as I recall, even cut that in half or, or just minimized it really, really small. And that was frustrating. And then, of course, you hear in Travis County, you know, there's law firms like Becky Beaver. Um, there's a number of firms out there. You know, they're getting hundreds of thousands of dollars rented by the court in Travis County for attorney's fees, which just boggles my mind because we're talking a difference of a 30 minute drive one way to another, maybe 45 minutes, you know, sure. depending on traffic or an hour, depending on traffic. Yeah. But you're talking just separated by, you know, uh, some arbitrary lights on a map, but just same highway run between both counties and you you have courts in travis county just way more open to massive uh you know financial types boards versus williamson county right i know I, I don't think i would say that you're you're painting a broad brush though because i mean part of our job is to mitigate risk too and that's what you're doing your analysis of the counties is part of that that uh or Analyzing each county is part of that mitigating the risk for your client, you know. So that's the way I look at it. There's other things too, right? Issues that may favor or disfavor uh, that county's personality politics, as we mentioned before. Um, important to step outside of your case and gather opinions from those who are as minimally biased towards your case as possible. What are you are you looking for a third party perspective here or are, are we talking like a, a focus group? Do we do focus groups in family law? You can. I mean, it, it's going to cost a lot of money yeah. uh, to do it. And I it, I would just say very close to never happens. But you could do focus groups. More than anything, your your good focus group is everybody's got at least a friend or two or three or family member or two or three that are actually more on the unbiased side of things. Right. Like they, they, they love the jazz from it. Yeah, they love you. They support you. They might even be attached to it. But they're just super invested in the concept of reality, yeah, and not just what you know their their family member is telling them. So, mm -hmm. uh, I, I do think it's important to get a third party's perspective on your case, and that's irrespective of whether you're thinking of jury trial or not. I think it's important to to talk to people that you know in the past. Uh, and these are the people that I'm defining here: people in the past that have at times uh, kindly voiced against you know your thoughts. Somebody who just doesn't consistently parrot everything that you say. Well, oh, my my wife or my husband abused me. Oh, absolutely. Your husband and wife abused you. No, wait a minute. The kind of people that would step back and go, well, tell me more about that. Yeah. You know, what's happening? What are you doing? Is there anything you're, you've done that would be equal or worse? Sure. Right? You don't want to yes, man. That's right. Yeah. And to me, those are the most valuable relationships, period. I mean, it's not really a, a true relationship to me if you just have someone parroting everything that you say back to you. Yeah. So anyway, I would say you want to gather those third-party perspectives because it very well could be that you stuck in the, the height of your emotions are pursuing a strategy that, you know, not not many reasonable people would agree with right. based upon the evidence, based upon what you've done, based upon what they've done. 
Right. Okay. I, I want to look at Bordier, Bordier, okay? Uh, and the jury selection process. Now, when you hear jury selection, you're thinking, well, each side is going to pick the jury for us, right? Yeah. Tell us what this really means, though. I mean, are we really picking the jury? Yeah, it, and we're not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, that's a misnomer when they talk about jury selection. It, it is a process that touches on jury selection. If you're not selecting a jury, what happens is there's a room full of a whole bunch of unfortunate souls that got a letter in the mail, right? right. And it said, come to the court. Right. And, and of course, even worse, mm-hmm. I mean, and I hate to, to sound so negative on our profession, but when they hear that they're in a jury room, to hear a family law case, I mean, typically their faces just don't look great. You know, it, if it was something of, you know, in their mind, grave, you know, community importance, they might be more interested to sit there. But I, I'm just going to be honest with you. Most jurors sit there and go, you're going to tell me that I've got to be a juror to argue over the crap that they want me to resolve about their divorce case or mm-hmm. the crap they want me to resolve because they couldn't figure it out with relation to their kid. Right. Okay. So then I want to be there. So you've got a huge room full of these people. Usually it's like, it could be 60 or more and you're picking the six to 12, right? But you're, but actually I just said it wrong. You're not picking the six to 12. What you're doing is they're numbered in order from front row to back. And the only thing you can do is, is uh, strike or eliminate certain jurors. You only get a certain number of them depending on how many um, uh, jurors are, are, you know, whether it's a county court case or district court case. Right. So you get a limited number of just, I want to ax this person, and you get a limited number, of, well, actually, and you get an unlimited number of strikes for cause, but that's another topic. A strike for cause is... That's a challenge. Rarely does a juror say something like, there's no way I could serve on this jury, or I could never be fair. I could never be uh, impartial. So you get a limited number of strikes that have no basis whatsoever. You just have those number of strikes. And then you have uh, an unlimited number of what rarely happens, which is legal strikes. So what really you're doing is you're just striking the uh, a few of the jurors and whoever's left over is your jury. jury. Yeah, that's it. Right. (laughs) Yeah, it it is definitely a misnomer because, you know, first, obviously, you're looking for cause. And I think the easiest way to think about cause is if it's based off, if the bias is based off race, right, um, and and all the other protected classes, too, that could be that could be a basis for cause and you could get rid of a juror. But when it's not for cause and you just are wanting to get rid of a juror, what are some of um, the things that you look at in order to bounce jurors off of the path? Yeah, so we get a, a very limited um, printout when we have a jury trial, and the printout will say age, name, um, occupation, and you know a few other little like degree of education. It'll just give you a few basic biographical bits of info that are not like too invasive mm-hmm. in, in privacy mm-hmm. and. From those little bits of information, you're trying to gather, you know, number one, could this person potentially know one of the parties? Uh, so you always ask that, you know, you, you want to find out, uh, you know, what, just get in a little bit more into the personal background, you know, of each uh, juror, for example, you know, and there's very delicate ways to do this, but essentially who has had experience in the family court system? Right. Was it good? Was it bad? What was the nature of the case? If you wish to share Right. So you get into those things and sometimes you find people who are like, oh, I, I had, you know, you, let's say you represent the wife. I had, and then the juror goes, I had a horrible experience with my ex-wife and she took me for everything she had. And it, it, I, you get a sense that he's, he may not 
be the most helpful to your client who's right. the wife right. because he had such a horrible jaded experience. With his ex-wife. That's right, with right. his ex-wife. Those are the kinds of evil things. I got you. That, that makes sense. And so you're left with the pool of juries that were non-selected, I guess we can put. Yeah. And, you know, after that point, though, you, you make the arguments, you go through, you go through the deliberation, and now comes, you know, the, the resolution, right, of the jury's, the jury's outcome, I should say, after deliberation. And, and this goes back to your, your, your point too, is, is managing your client, right? And this is what we're doing throughout the entire case, actually. But if we get a outcome that is favorable to our client, then of course, everything is easy peasy, right? It's smooth sailing from there. But what happens when we get an outcome that is not favorable to our client? And this goes back to what you were talking about is whether or not you've sought some advice from a disinterested third party or maybe someone that's interested but is more that's seeing a different perspective of the case right yeah yeah the most unhappy clients i've ever had were clients that had gotten a bad ruling from a jury uh and of course the reason for that is quite simple number one they spent a lot more number right. two they uh and i think this is the most devastating component though is that they were certain in their mind that they had a bad judge and that if only they had a jury any jury, uh, because they, again, they know they're not picking. I make that very clear. Right. Any jury would agree with them. There's no jury that would disagree with them. And again, it, it comes back to that whole bouncing your case off of really your your great little warm network mm -hmm. of people who are not yes men, yes yes woman kind right. of people. Uh, you you want to you need those people because the, again, those are just the most unhappy clients. They just didn't, in my mind, do a good enough job of. Of bouncing, you know, their case off of others, and you know, I'm, I'm always one of those people in that network of trying to bounce my ideas off the client. But at the end of the day, you know, I I, I can only do so much, right? You know, and I'm not I'm not trying to offend my client when I get my opinions on their case. Uh, I don't ever want to suggest to a client that I know the future. I have crystal ball, but but I, I definitely give clients my assessment. And, mm -hmm. and typically, if we go to a jury trial and we lose. I would say 100% of the time, I would have previously cautioned them because I could see the writing on the wall. I would caution them that there is a substantial risk that we will lose with the jury. Right. And so they always accept that risk. I make sure they do because I'm not going to have them pay me a bunch of money and then go into a jury and then you know have a, a really an adverse outcome all for naught. No, it's actually a good point because I, I think you and I are definitely part of that word network. We're going to tell you straight and we're going to be very clear about it. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know if you use this term, but I I always mention that there's always going to be a money component to this, you know, and you dip into that war chest, you got to know when to be able to close it. Yeah. Because it might not be worth it at the end of the day. You know? Yeah. If I were to summarize, it's really three things. It's, if I summarize the whole episode, it'd be, Number one, uh, and, and this isn't an order of importance, but let's just say the big three. One, is it affordable? You have to talk about it in right. honest way your budget. Number two, are there is your judge the kind of judge that you really feel that a jury trial is the only avenue to get what you want? Sure. And of course, in this one, I probably could have made, if I was putting them in order, it would be number one. Are there issues that you need resolved that a jury could even decide to hear? So you bundle all it together. It's a, a really important conversation to have with your attorneys. And, and again, I'll harken back to you. You need a law firm in my mind, um, at least the firm itself, whether it be one of the managing partners or somebody at the firm to have some jury trial experience. So yes. that 
there's the ability to navigate it if that time comes because you want it, it it's just like in any activity in life if you if you have all the tools available to you it's much better than having most of the tools but one of the tools removed you want to have all the tools available to you um, and a jury trial should always be something in your law firm's toolbox all right, man. Hey, good episode. Episode six. We're kind of finding our voice now. I feel a little bit more comfortable. We have our own setup in our room with um, some quick quick. Uh Episode seven coming up next week. Uh, we are recording on Fridays and we're dropping on Saturdays. This week we're a little bit late, but we'll hey. catch up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, back next week. I don't know if we're going to be a little bit late ourselves too. We may be. We'll be at Vegas. We have a trip coming up. That's important. Yeah, do a short one in the room. <laughs> All right. We'll see you guys later. Thank you.